0: You're listening to Chicago Writes, the podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. On this episode of Chicago Writes, from publishing cocktails, Javier Ramirez and Kira Graf. Plus, Evanston author and screenwriter, Dorothy Makovich Marks, a respectful conversation on the art of writing sex scenes in fiction. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. But first, a few announcements from our CWA calendar. Now is the time to join Chicago Writers Association. It's open to writers and authors anywhere in the world. Unlock a wealth of writer and author resources, programs, and benefits for just $25 per year by visiting chicagorights.org or click on the link in the notes below. Chicago Writers Association membership, by the way, makes a great gift. Are you writing a novel? You can submit up to 10 pages of your first chapter to CWA's 8th Annual First Chapter Contest first place winner receives a full scholarship to attend either the all-genre novel-in-progress book camp and writing retreat or the speculative fiction book camp and writing retreat. Both will be held on June 16th through the 22nd, 2024 at the Siena Retreat Center on the shores of Lake Michigan in Racine, Wisconsin, a value of $1,500. Second and third place winners will receive cash awards of $150 and $75, respectively. Plus, the top three entries will also be published in CWA's Wright City Magazine. A refundable fee of $15 must be made online on the same date as the author's entry is submitted. There is only one entry allowed per person. The contest is open to dues-paying CWA members only. Join CWA today for just $25 and take advantage of this opportunity to unlock a wealth of writer's resources. The deadline for submissions is October 1st, 2023. Winners will be announced in December 2023. Visit chicagorights.org for eligibility and submission guidelines. Don't forget to stop by the CWA tent at Printer's Row Lit Fest, Saturday, September 9th, and Sunday, September 10th, where more than 40 of your fellow authors, publishers, and CWA members will be selling and signing copies of their work. The event runs from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. both days. We are family-friendly, and it is free to attend. Sign up today for our Speakers Bureau Seminar, What Makes a Successful Website for Authors, September 23, 2023. Do you have an author website? Are you using it effectively to market yourself and your book? Whether you currently have a website or are considering one, this workshop is for you. Celeste Anton of Dandelion Web Marketing and Consulting will show you the importance of having an author website and how it can help you market and sell your books. What makes a successful Website for Authors workshop will be held from 10am to 12pm Central Standard Time on Saturday, September 23, 2023. Registration is $15 for members and $20 for non-members. Registration in advance is required as space is limited. Visit chicagorights.org. By the way, CWA members who are indie writers and publishers can get an extra 25% discount with our partners at Litnuts with discount code CWA25. That's CWA25. Haven't heard about Litnuts? Litnuts was created to bring the best of independent, university, small, and micro presses to book lovers like you. LitNuts features only indie books. No books from the big five corporate publishers or their imprints. Just great books from independent authors and small presses. Subscribers can get great books from indie publishers at affordable prices. And publishers and indie authors get an affordable way to share their work with engaged readers. Visit litnuts.com and subscribe today. And don't forget, to use the discount code CWA25. And a reminder to register now for Let's Just Write an Uncommon Writers Conference, March 22nd through the 24th, 2024. Visit chicagorights.org. Let's Just Write an Uncommon Writers Conference, named one of the best conferences in the U.S., by The Writer Magazine. And now, my conversation with Dorothy Makovich Marks. Dorothy Makovich-Marx is a Chicago-based writer, screenwriter, and producer. She earned her MFA in screenwriting after studying journalism. Early in her career, Dorothy worked with preservationists in Chicago to conserve and repurpose historic movie palaces. We'll have to have you on my Playtime podcast to talk more about that. Uh, An impassioned traveler, Dorothy lives on the shores of Lake Michigan with her family. And as she notes, two polite cats. Her latest book, Le Beau Chateau was inspired by a true story about the shuttering of French bakeries. Le Beau Chateau tells the story of a father and son antique dealers amid the twilight of a romanticized legacy French culture. Her website is DorothyMakovichMarks.com. You can also keep up with her uh, to date on Facebook at uh, Marks, and I'll post links to those in the notes below. Welcome to Chicago
1: Rides. Thank you
0: very much. I'm glad to be here. I, I really, really enjoyed the book, um, and it brought up something uh, a really important and sensitive and touchy topic that I think is is really important to contemporary authors. Uh, and we'll we'll get to that in in just a bit. Um, but you studied to be a screenwriter, which uh, more than I dialogue did. is scenes and uh, piecing them together to tell a complete. Or a compelling visual story how did that prepare you to write Le Beau Chateau
1: well I mean as you know a screenwriter yourself screenwriting uh, is um it's it's very self-indulgent to a degree in that it's hard to get anything produced and though I have a number of screen plays both mm-hmm. um, full movies and um one that's I'm particularly Um, bound to, a TV series about the Elgin Marbles called Provenance. Um, No one is knocking on my door to produce that. And when we locked (laughs) down for COVID, I had an opportunity to, like we all did, be with myself and with my ideas, stuff that I'd been brewing on for a very long time. So I I had thought about writing a story about an antiques dealer, salvage dealer Mm -hmm. for a long time. And this was an opportunity to sort of not take anyone's notes, and not that I'm uh, afraid of notes. I'm a very collaborative person, but this was when we were all in our own little silos. That's just what I did. I sat down and wrote the story that I'd been sort of brewing about for a long time.
0: Let me ask you this. Uh, The book is written in third-person present, uh, which uh, is how I write screenplays, is how I write write plays, while a few of the backstory parts are in third-person past, uh, which makes perfect sense. Do you also write in third person present when you're writing screenplays and is it a matter of writing in in a style that's comfortable and intuitive to you or what what not informed... at all. Okay I
1: flipped and flopped. I wrote it back and forth 14 million times. I wow. could never decide what fit. Um everything seemed to fit nothing seemed to fit. Um, mm. And just as you reference um, screenwriting is, of course, everything is in the present tense, right? Yep, we can't, yep. nothing is, and that always rings in my head. I can't even shake that. Um, <laughs> although I just finished Anne Patchett's um, Tom Lake, and she's so good at looping back into what happened in the past, and you are so aware of what's current and what's past, and that's <laughs> really a, a gift to be able to allow the reader to get it without saying, "Oh, and then I used to think" or something as clumsy as that it, wow, what a genius of that! It's I. It would ne- did not come easily, and I really I was back and forth a million and one times. The organization that helped me publish this Girl Friday mm-hmm. um, had some excellent editors, and they helped me choose and ultimately. But I wrote mm-hmm. it multiple ways, and um, and I couldn't decide. It took a long time. <laughs> it's not an
0: easy thing to do. I wrote I wrote one of my novels during the Occupy movement, The Last Man in a in a present tense it's not an easy thing to to accomplish and pull off um and uh, you you did exceedingly well
1: i went many years ago to a writing program where the instructor and i'll leave that person's name out said Uh no publisher wants to uh, publish any stories that aren't in first person which totally put me off (laughs) Um, yeah yeah. i I need a little distance yeah i think person can be very it's almost too close for me
0: your characterization in the book is really strong. Characters like JP for example, are are you do you, do you set out and do you do you build the characters before you write the story or are you kind of evolving in the story with with that sort of exposé of the character?
1: I would say this book I was far less disciplined. Okay. Um I worked in final draft most of my sort of recent training. At at any rate, I, I was separating myself from that. I was far less disciplined, and I just wrote. Um, I'm working on a sequel to this right now, and I'm working with Scribner, which is not super intuitive for me, mm-hmm. but it seems to really help me set scenes, set character profiles in a way that and the other thing is, I'm not exactly a very organized writer, so keeping everything in one place, Scrivener is very good at that. It sounds like a simple thing, but I don't know. I I don't know if you can see my office, but I got notebooks and notebooks <laughs> and and anyway, I'm. It's it's really good to keep everything in one place. So for this new project, Scrivener seems to be just the thing.
0: And and outline no, no outline, seat your pants. How, how does um, how does that work?
1: I got a lot of feedback about Les Beaux Chateaux, about uh-huh. things that people felt that were missing. And I that was no outline. I was really seated in yeah. my pants. And I feel like, had I been more disciplined, had I created an outline, had I really known where the characters were going, because mm-hmm. I didn't know as I was mm-hmm. writing, perhaps I would have answered some of the things that people have pointed out were weaknesses. So I hope to be more disciplined and have an outline in the second piece. I'm working That's- on it now.
0: I've spoken with a lot of authors, uh, and authors who are, who are strictly by the seat of their pants, authors who, who are meticulous outliners, uh, and, but they all say the same thing. I really have no idea where this character is going. If you create a, a a compelling enough character, they end up with their own intention, which means if you want them to go left at some point, they're going to go right. Uh, it, it or they're happens. going to tell you they're going to go straight ahead. They right. they kind of assume their own identity. And it's a matter of you managing them to to the end or to a fulfilling end. But uh, in, in my case, as a writer, uh, I always have the end in mind. And it's just a matter of managing them in this sort of jazzy back and forth to to that resolution.
1: Well, I think just as you say, managing, keeping that whatever the plot is within that what that character yeah. would really do. I mean, you can't say that character would put on high heels when it's that has nothing to do with that character. So when you say manage it, it's within whatever the character's boundaries are.
0: Yeah, exactly. Precisely. Uh, You've obviously traveled uh, quite a bit throughout Normandy and and France as, as a whole. How important was that? for writing this this novel.
1: It, we always write about, or we always wonder about what we love or what we know. And so even yeah. if you've been there yesterday, you wonder what's happening today. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yes, I've traveled in France quite a bit. I love it. There's always something new to learn. And this post-colonial world that we're living in that I don't know about how woke it is or not. I don't want to be too political except <laughs> to say that things are changing and the role of museums, yeah. which used to be untouchable, is now very much in question. And I love the responsibility of museums. Mm -hmm. Um, I can see many mm, facets of why things are preserved at museums. And I can also see some of the darker sides of museums that have been either taken things or have been gifted things that really were not appropriate for them to take. However, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as we go back and forth, particularly with the elegant marbles about whether they were preserved for humanity in a way that might not have been, they might not have been preserved. Period. Yeah, that's we don't know, um, but it's it's an interesting debate. So, what what draws me are the things that are passed on, that are prized, that are sold, that are valuable. What is that? And what are those stories? There,
0: there's kind of a line there between between the looting of of a culture and and a, a global expression of of a culture.
1: And Right, and who, who who speaks for that, for any given people? Um, right. Um, there's uh, my very good friend, Alec Wally, who's now mm-hmm. um, retired from the Field Museum. Her swan song and really fantastic uh, exhibit on the American Indian, which is uh, Native Americans, excuse me, mm-hmm. um, has been redone at the Field Museum, um, has advised me very carefully that people, uh, Native Americans are saying, people cannot write about us without talking to us. That's an interesting perspective. People mm-hmm. want to get their facts correct. Mm-hmm. I'm always wary of people saying, oh, you can only write about your own experience. Then that means I can only write about white Jewish suburban <laughs> experience. <laughs> that's uh, that's pretty limiting. And I, I I veer away from that discussion. Um, that's But I am a good researcher and I'm interested to hear multiple points of view. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, now it's time to talk about sex in an appropriate way but so I, I i thought that i could use this as as kind of a short master class on on some of the uh, some of the finer points of writing erotic fiction and erotic scenes in fiction because it's become such a such an important Part of of contemporary writing, and and so we'll we'll get to that. As I alluded in the opening, I wanted to be very careful with this topic, uh, but I think there's value in discussing writing sex scenes and how and why, at least for Dorothy Marks, that that was important in Les Beaux Châteaux.
1: Thank you. Um, well, I would say first and foremost, it's a human expression, and yep. JP has some difficulty in articulating in words or in language. Mm-hmm. And uh, he can show these women that he cares about how he feels about them in a way that's not verbal So to me, that was sort of part of his MO. Went with his character. I didn't feel that it was out of place. That said, writing sex scenes is complicated, not complicated in the writing of it, but in mm-hmm. that it's there, it's in print. And then people you know and people you don't know are reading it. Um, <clears throat> interestingly enough, my son married into a hindu family and they are very gracious and have been wonderful addition to our family and it's been a melding mm-hmm. all of these um older aunties that now shelby my son calls <laughs> family are reading this book and i was so anxious about them every single one of them had told me oh i love that part so um it's answering something that's cross-cultural yeah maybe um that was surprising to me i was wanting to be a little circumspect maybe i shouldn't have done it because really people i know are reading this but people i know are interested in this um Mm -hmm. um, and you talk about gratuitous um scenes i hope that mine are not what i showed with rama who is the person who he doesn't really love that much but Mm -hmm. he has an interlude with her yeah um what i wanted to show is that she was willing to use Whatever means she had to make a connection. Um, so
0: we're gonna we're gonna get to some of the important points there. I, I could only find one article that gave any sort of advice about how to structure and write romantic erotic scenes in in books, which which I thought was really kind of problematic for for writers want. Wanting or needing or or viewing that as a, as a vehicle for characterization and right. and to further their story or aspects of their story. That's it, very it, interesting.
1: Only one article popped up.
0: Only one article in in the Writers Magazine. will get it's to like that a, a third little Third
1: rail, huh? It
0: it certainly is, and and I I was searching far and wide. Um, when when I uh, I came across or or when the when the question occurred to me, I also know a number of women who read romantic fiction and they gravitate towards those stories with graphic sexuality,
1: or or maybe just fulfillment in general, whatever that is. And if that's part of what, if graphic sexuality is part of fulfillment, people want to know that stories have that.
0: I think there's some some numbers here that will help us uh, get to yeah. uh, get to an understanding and an answer of of the importance and the necessity, perhaps, of, of erotic scenes. A uh, few of us question when an author writes graphic violence. According to Journey uh, to Self Help the average age of today's book reader is 44, but 50 is the average age of most frequent book buyers. 58 percent. Of readers are women 42 percent are men according to romance writers uh, of um, uh, romance writers of america romance book sales make up around 23 percent of all total fiction sales that's an astounding number to the uh, uh that's really, that's
1: where the money is i will just say that romance is a very particular formula in my book as much as i, I had taken classes in romance writing i never quite fit into that you have there's certain things that have to be touched on, and what they to be fulfilled that romance category. But so, you use uh, it,
0: you use it to uh, to identify and quantify an aspect of of a character. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. Women, uh, women edge male authors just slightly. Uh, that all speaks to a growing uh, a growing women's agency, right?
1: I think so, um, yeah. but I, I mean, I I don't know if women have the upper hand in terms of writing. Better sex scenes. I think it just it's the writer, whatever they, however their sensitivity
0: goes or not. There's some examples of uh, of men writing powerful erotic uh, scenes in, in literature. Right. right. Um, so I did some did some research and consulted experts. Uh, women I know who enjoy the re- the reality of graphic romance scenes in books. Each of the women that I spoke with uh, were very critical of niche fetishes preferring context over randomness is that is that what you find
1: I could not agree more okay. right.
0: respectful scenes over abusive or gratuitous scenes right. uh and uh, and protagonist with their chosen love interest which is uh all uh very very important
1: right I would say that if it's any of those things those could be offensive enough for me to put a book down and say eh, this is not for me
0: okay okay uh also context context context
1: right if it's out of a character's mo yeah it doesn't belong um but if it's part of the way they function part of how they move in the world mm-hmm. then it it seems appropriate to explain it in detail if it works i mean if it works with the character
0: so the only the only thing that i could find on actually writing and tips for writing graphic sex scenes in, in books uh, was by Helen Uh Her seven tips for yeah. writing sex scenes in fiction, which I'll post a link to in the notes below. Uh, I'm going to skip around in this a little bit, but I'd love, love your thoughts on each of these. Uh, number one is don't include them just for the sake of it. Like any scene, they should drive the story forward or reveal something about the character. Again, we said character and context development or context and character development. Right.
1: Absolutely, couldn't yeah. believe, I couldn't agree more. Doesn't okay. work unless it works with the character the way. Absolutely.
0: Uh, number two, space out the explicit details with emotional responses and revelations of character. It's not penthouse letters.
1: Doesn't doesn't make sense if we can't know what they're feeling. I mean, we are always showing scenes of yeah. um, aftermath or yeah. I mean, right. We need to know how they feel, not just what they're doing. That's and That's the point of a, a book. In, in many ways, we can know the interior thoughts of a person, whereas in a movie, writing a screenplay, we can only see. We don't yeah. know in their minds.
0: And you only have so much, so much space in a book, uh, so many words on a page. You're always, you always need to be thinking economy of of words uh, and driving the story forward, even even if it feels like it's it's an interlude, right?
1: Right, I, I right, right. There's always real estate questions. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that uh, comes from screenwriting training too, right? We only have 160 pages, 120 pages. Period. The end. Right. That's nothing it. Wrong.
0: That's it. You got to make right. them count. Uh, don't make it perfect. Nothing ever is, but it needs to make sense, right? Um, so, so a bit of structure and choreography is
1: is sort of critical. I mean, it it goes a lot with. I guess, with screenwriting, to me, structure, and that's, um, what, do you, what yeah. do you see? What do you see? What do you feel? How does it look? Um, truly, my thesis advisor, Brad Riddell, at DePaul, a genius uh-huh. in his own right,
2: uh-huh.
1: r- he studied dinner table scenes um, in screenwriting class so many times. And I have so many notes about the structure of what a dinner table scene could and could not be. And in many ways, these... Um, and sexual encounters are similar in that we see who these people are within their context we see whatever there's always a I guess a cultural structure of who you are where you come from and how you how you relate with other people whether it's verbal or sexual or any other ways means of communication and um, at any rate I would say it sounds goopy to say that a lot of what i learned about writing a sex scene came from dinner table scenes practicing in right. um, screenwriting but that's where it is
0: except that not every reader will find the same thing attractive i want i want to put right. that in the context of le beau chateau and how you uh how you decided to to structure those those scenes
1: rama was a person yeah. she was opportunistic um uh-huh. and she would be opportunistic in words, in business, in sexuality, in Mm -hmm. dinner table conversation, whatever it took to advance her foothold to become American, to Mm -hmm. be a person of profit, a person of means. And that was the way that she felt she could connect with JP. Veronique,
0: Um, Veronique, uh, JP's other love interest, is very much opposite of Rama.
1: And I think that's in many ways, I think JP was ultimately turned off by Rama in her opportunism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and Vivi Veronique was just the opposite, as you say. Mm-hmm. She was a person who operates absolutely on principle. She's the founder of this whole France, this preservation organization. And she feels that she is true to herself, although she's a married woman and has uh, sexual liaisons with other people. Mm-hmm. But it's an agreement with her husband and it's an open I would call it not opportunistic. I would call it, it's a way she relates to people. Uh, She's traveling throughout France and she Mm -hmm. is looking, she's measuring sincerity in many ways. Do you believe what I believe, that France should be preserved for French? And that's, uh, it's a little simplistic to say that's all her MO, but in part, her liaison with JP, sexual liaison, I think, had to do with her testing his sincerity how mm-hmm. genuine a person is he um because that mattered to her that mattered to her to continue to continue on in their professional loosely professional um linkage in preservation but she needed to know what he was made of and that was one of her tests and i would say to a degree jp similarly she was simply beautiful and she was so french and he didn't know that he had missed things so french and um she answered a lot of those things that he had missed and he didn't know that he had missed.
0: If you're not comfortable this is number six, if you're not comfortable writing them, don't. And that's why there's always a fade out option. You right. seem because you you don't know who will be reading reading this. So right. you need to be comfortable not only not only in in its context or its importance within the story, you sort of need to be, be comfortable within within your own skin what you're describing right,
1: right? Uh, absolutely i yeah. like i said people are reading it um anyone could be reading your book once you're published you're uh-huh. a different person so yeah that's a that's a foregone conclusion
0: uh, my uh, my first novel sold uh, fairly well in india even though wow. it takes place in the up michigan and i found that out because friends of ours had a had a resort there and they were telling us about all these people that were bringing the book and and reading it and and traveling the up from, from india and it was it was astounding but you never know who who's going to be reading your book and we're we're a global community now right yeah many
1: years ago i i made a small movie about my mother-in-law janina Marks, who was a uh-huh. and it showed at something called the small film corner at can and it's a place you it, it didn't show like in the big screens, it showed in what was like a library and you could go into the Palais at Cannes uh, and pull up any movie that's in the small film corner. And then after the whole festival, you go back and see who screened your movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was about my mother-in-law, as I said, with Wayne emigre, she was a weaver and wrote uh, did the stories about her her whole endurance through the war and coming to Chicago, woman of Lady Bountiful, very involved with the Hyde Park Art Center, but she became a weaver. And who looks at my movie? All these Persians who are rug weavers. Because the name of the movie is Janina Weaving the Future Through Art. All wow. these people who watch my movie. It was about this this you know Eastern European immigration experience. Yeah. And yet all these weavers from in from Iran were, were watching the movie, so you never know.
0: That's so amazing. That's so amazing. Uh, Number seven, accept that you're going to have to be comfortable editing these scenes with someone in a professional capacity. Right.
1: Again, Girls Friday, I can't say enough about how fantastic they were. Um, Again, I went back and forth with tense and I went back and forth with how much I was going to include in these sex scenes. And they really advised me, I think, well and helped me through this process, and they were just uh, terrific. And I, I was really sort of blind, not knowing what to do. They really helped me.
0: Did they? Did they help you restructure or tell that, tell that scene or that 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 internal story better or more concisely?
1: I would say yes. They helped with okay with with um, real estate as well as I had okay. another scene that sounds kind of crazy. I had another scene where JP. After he meets Sharon, there's a scene that um, I had when they were first falling in love, and mm-hmm. the um, Girl Friday said, "No, this is simply not appropriate. You cannot put this in at all." So um, they had good advice, and upon reflection, I agreed with them. So yes, they were very helpful, and I didn't right. think they were prudish; they were simply honest. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, may, maybe 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 Nate should be um, that you should know some basic anatomy. <laughs> <laughs> what what are you uh what are you working on now
1: well um I had thought that I would write a prose version of my provenance story Wow! Um, but that's actually very long and and I wasn't sure I had the the mm, my the seat of the pants to see the chair stuff that it takes mm-hmm. to do that just mm-hmm. now and I got a lot of uh feedback from people after I'd had a couple readings to do a sequel to Les Beaux Châteaux. So, a number of people said that I had given short shrift to the women in this book, and I think that may be true. So, I am working on.
0: It is really about that father and son relationship.
1: But I think Sharon Tracker, who is the uh, Native American prosecutor, is worth um, exploring more. So that's where I'm working on right there
0: now. There you go. There you go. Uh, you're you're also active, uh, as you said earlier, uh, with the uh, with the Field Museum.
1: I am. I've been a. A member of the Women's Board for almost 30 years, so there's a long time there. It's a great, great group of scientists, and um, they're always examining and looking forward to what the next thing is in science and in culture and in preservation and where they stand in the context of Chicago. So that's great. It's a great group.
0: Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Les Beau Chateau was the number one bestseller in historical French fiction. I wish we could uh, could spend a lot more time. We 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 will uh, we will revisit this conversation. Dorothy Makovich Marks is a Chicago-based writer, screenwriter, and producer. Find her on Facebook at Dorothy Makovich Marks. Her website is Dorothy and we'll post that in the links below. Before we go, I spoke with Javier Ramirez and Kira Graf of Publishing Cocktails. Before we get to Publishing Cocktails, we carried over a bit of that earlier conversation about writing sex scenes.
3: Yeah, there's actually an award that goes out every year for the worst sex scene <laughs> uh, that in that given year. I've talked to writers about this a lot. It's hard to write them. We just had a book club for a book called Certain Hunger. Uh-huh. Which, uh, a lot of fanfare behind that book. Sort of a horror Hannibal Lecter, female Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, um, great concept, but after we all read it and talked about it, we all agreed that this person who wrote the book, sex scenes had never had sex before because they were just so. Oh, gosh, the scenes were just so bad. I yeah, mean, that, just, you
0: know. <laughs> so so I I brought up with, with Dorothy a uh, uh, seven points that were uh, that were offered by uh, by Helen Schroyer. But none of them said that it's important that you know at least something about anatomy. <laughs> yeah,
3: exactly. <laughs> which, yeah.
0: which I think would be fundamental.
3: Yeah, um, exactly.
0: There's a there's a whole there's a whole huh. bit on TikTok about what not to, and this is for Chicago Writers Association. Sure. So we needed to keep it clean. But of things you you shouldn't say mm-hmm. in description words you shouldn't use to describe certain body parts. Uh, there's, there's, there's a, there's a whole comedic (laughs) genre about, about that. My, and my wife shows it (laughs) to me all the time. You won't believe this. And it's, it's always, it's always, it's generally always men who are writing this and women Mm -hmm. who are commenting on it. Yeah. But, (laughs) um, but we, so we went over some numbers, 23% of all, of all book sales in the United States are, uh, are romance literature.
3: Yeah, not nice. which is massive, massive. We're we'll having Excellent. our first romance book club tonight.
0: Javier and I were just having a uh, a discussion. I I just spoke with a uh, with a writer who wrote some steamy sex scenes. So we were talking about the the when, why, and how of of <laughs> writing the writing that. <laughs> and um, but an important an important aspect of, of writing, I don't have to tell you uh, as as a novelist and and an author. But there are not a lot of clear resources about writing erotic scenes in, in fiction. So that's a really
4: good point. There are not. I've been on a fair number of panels over the years about writing sex scenes. And the uh-huh. first the first book I wrote with my writing partner, Linda Joffe Hull, um, was very explicit. It was about swingers, and that occasioned no end of titillation and interest from her friends in the writing community um and and that's something we've talked about a lot over the years but you're right i mean i don't i don't know that there's a lot of guidance because i think there's still kind of a stigma it used to be more common i think in the 60s 70s and 80s even for literary authors to tackle sexuality and i think it's become um, more of you know i mean there's the the bad sex awards in fiction given in england and i think um, people are afraid of getting nominated or something so they won't (laughs) even try but I would say that sexuality is a pretty integral to the human existence. So I think writers shouldn't be afraid to dig in.
0: Yeah, it is, and and so so we made the point of um, first of all, it needs to, it needs to be contextual, and and a lot of a lot of the fetishes or or you know they'll they'll reach, an, uh, reach a reach a niche market, but that's not the bulk of who who reads that, and and it's really sort of a sort of an aspect of women's agency mm-hmm. and and we have no we have no compunction against writing graphic violence but there's always that that stigma ab- about writing graphic eroticism even though it's maybe one of the more humanizing aspects that we can share between between people right as uh, as, yeah. as an author and a, and a reader
4: Going way back, Lenny Bruce used to do a routine about how um, you know nobody batted an eye if if you um, sm- had a film where you smothered a woman with a pillow, but if you put the pillow under her and made loved yep. her, then everybody lost their minds. <laughs>
0: uh, a dear, dear friend of mine is Ronnie Marmo, who's doing uh, who's who's done a uh, oh. a play for the last several years. You know it. Yeah, um, I saw that. Javier, if, if you don't know, uh, it's uh, I'm not a comedian. I'm Lenny Bruce, and he's Ronnie's coming back to the. Uh, Uh, the North Shore Center in Skokie here for for a couple of a couple of nights and then and then moving on so and and great show yeah it's a great show he he loved us we I was the first person to, to speak with him in Chicago about the about the show before it opened I was also the only broadcaster to air the original uh Lenny Bruce piece uncensored oh wow my guests Javier Ramirez and Keir Graff, I hope, will forgive the cliff note version of their resumes in the introduction. Simply those accomplishments and contributions to Chicago's literary landscape would occupy an entire segment. The simplest description of Keir Graff is that he is a a versatile writer, editor, and author who has published 12 novels under three different names. What are you hiding, Mr. Graff? (laughs) <laughs> uh including a thriller uh, including the thriller one nation under god and montana noir surely sounds interesting to me an anthology of crime fiction which offers a guided tour to the dark side of big sky country he also authored co-authored minerva keen's detective club for young adults with james patterson uh the website is kiergraph.com. javier unfortunately i couldn't find anything about you online
3: Javier Ramirez,
0: (laughs) that's right. Javier Ramirez is the proprietor of Exile and Bookville, exileandbookville.com, in the historic fine arts building 410 South Michigan Avenue, Suite 210 in Chicago's Loop. The number there is 312-753-3154. That's 753-3154. Man, could you pick a more... Beautiful place.
3: Is it, I, I think it might be worth noting that um, I co-owned the store with my business partner who was just w- walking in and out of here, uh, Kristen Gilbert.
0: Okay. Um, but Kier, you attended a very Stephen King sounding high school called Hellgate, right? <laughs> yes,
4: absolutely. It's, okay. It's, I always, I always uh, Hellgate High School um, to me always sounds like it was guarding the Hellmouth and uh, Buffy <laughs> the Vampire Slayer. It was named for the uh, by uh, French trappers who, when they traveled through, they would see so many human skeletons on the ground wow. um, that they they thought it looked like the gates to hell. It was a very narrow canyon. um local uh, blackfeet uh, Indians would prey on some of the other less warlike tribes, I guess, and uh, <laughs> were quite successful at it. So that yeah, that name is um, amused and shocked uh, young audiences all across the country. <laughs>
0: That that alone would be would be enough to inspire, I, th- I think, just about anybody to write. Uh, but you got your started as a writer there, and you received your first critical success from a sophomore English teacher with uh, a book called Wolves Cry. Did I get that right?
4: <laughs> <laughs> that yes, that was a that was a vanity publication of one, but I did uh-huh. I did get some interesting feedback. Uh, yeah, growing up in Missoula, Montana, uh, you kind of couldn't throw a rock without hitting a, a novelist or a poet. And, um, you know, yeah. the people, guys who painted houses around town were usually writing poetry on mm-hmm. the side. Uh, J- James Crumley was a huge early influence on me, as was Richard Hugo, the poet, and, yeah. and who also wrote a fine crime novel. And so I determined to do likewise. From my teenage years, I was I was always scribbling and always trying to, to capture something about the seedy underbelly of the otherwise picturesque place where I grew up. But my first... No- published novel, um, a crime novel set in a fictionalized Montana, um, mm-hmm. uh, was called Cold Lessons, and it was a book I wrote under a, a pen name, uh, Michael McCullough.
0: Javier, according to your bio, uh, you seem to be on a mission to work at every independent bookstore or own every, every indep- independent oh. bookstore in, in Chicago and Oak Park, right?
3: Uh, yeah, but the buck is stopping here. This is, this is my last stop.
0: Uh, before, uh, did you get your start? at uh, at Tower Records in their book department or yes.
3: okay yeah uh 93 i think
0: yeah and yeah. and and that that fed the beast for you
3: yeah it did yeah it was uh, my first intro to i wasn't a big reader before that and had a mm-hmm. huge uh aha moment when i started working at the, at the book division working at the warehouse so packing books up sending them out to stores and then moved to chicago in '95, to open up a Tower store in beautiful Schaumburg, Illinois.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you do you remember what that aha moment was?
3: Like I said, I wasn't much of a reader in my. Uh, I was one. Wonder, I wondered why we didn't. We did nothing. We just distributed small presses. Yeah, the major houses were drop shipped to to our wonderful, incredible Tower bookstores. I asked why we didn't carry Stephen King or Dean Koontz,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and uh, the buyers took me by literally by the ear and said. Gave me a stack of books and said, read these over the weekend. And if this isn't the job for you, this isn't a job for you. And it was, oh. went home, started reading and just changed. I totally changed my world. I had no vision of my life up until that point.
0: Just clicked, just clicked. Just like that. Tell us about, uh, a little bit about uh, Exile and Bookfill.
3: Oh, sure. Uh, it's a general, kind of general interest bookstore. Uh, but because of my tower roots, uh, books and music have become synonymous. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it is it is uh, based on it's an homage to Exile in Guyville, um Liz Fair's ninety-three uh, seminal album uh-huh. recorded in Chicago, cover art from uh, Rainbow in Wicker Park. We we have a wonderful small bookstore here in the Fine Arts Building. Like I said, it's a general, but we do uh, we sell vinyl,
2: mm-hmm. uh, new
3: vinyl. No new stuff, it's basically stuff that we'd love to listen to. If there's one thing we do care about a lot, it's uh, small presses and translated works. So mm. uh, that's sort of our bread and butter.
0: I saw on your calendar, uh, Jeff Tweedy from Wilco is going to be uh, at Exile.
3: Yeah, we're, we're co-hosting with WBEZ at uh, local theater because we couldn't house him here. It's going to be at like
2: uh-huh.
3: 900 people. Uh, and we're really excited about that. He's got a new book coming out um, about songs Yeah, uh, and uh, in the fall. And we are really, really excited about that event. Happy to be hosting with WBZ.
0: Here, I saw that you worked on a uh, on a young uh, adult novel with James Patterson, uh, which I mentioned in the introduction. I partnered in a children's book that's uh, uh, that's coming out, uh, I think, this month um, with uh, with Ken Corber, who who does health related and safety related books for for kids that that are distributed through. Uh, through pediatrics and 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 kids doctors around the country. First of all, how did that relationship come about, uh, and then how did it lead to the two of you working together?
4: Uh, congratulations on your book, first of all. That's that's very cool. Thank you. Um, yeah, the the Patterson collaboration was interesting. So I write what is really in in the kid lit biz mm-hmm. more accurately referred to as middle grade. Um, young adult tends to be a little more teenager, okay. stuff that I'm, I'm not mature enough to revisit yet, so I like to focus <laughs> on the kind of fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. <laughs> Somebody described the differences kind of like, in middle grade, you a boy can like a girl, but they can't like like them, okay, <laughs> so they okay. get a lot more, they get yeah, a lot more complicated right. in, in, in YA, but so I I'd, I'd published four middle grade novels uh-huh. under my own name. And, uh, but I also write adult and I also um, collaborate. And so uh, when James Patterson's people contacted uh, my agent saying that he was looking to, to, for a collaborator on a new project, uh, my agent put me forward. I think the fact that I, you know, worked in kind of both those areas, but also that I'm already a veteran collaborator was something that maybe helped get me to the top. But um, uh, Jim Patterson read one of my kids' books liked it, and the oh. next thing I knew, it, it was all it all happened very quickly. The next thing I knew, we were on the phone together, and he was sketching out his his plan, and uh, it took off from there. And I have to say, it was, you know, I didn't know what to expect, but even if I had, I think what happened wouldn't have been what I expected.
2: Yeah,
4: uh, he's a very generous collaborator. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's obviously the the big dog. He's he's the best-selling living author, most likely, um, but he's incredibly funny, warm and just generous. Like <laughs> as a collaborator, he he always has great suggestions, but he's also always willing to listen or to let his collaborators solve problems in their own way. So <laughs> that's just been a real pleasure and I, I hope I get to keep writing Minerva Keen mysteries for a while.
0: You know, we we tend to think of ourselves as as standalone fixtures, as as writers and that it's all about our vision and and to to an extent our our ego, right? You know that then we see we see these collaborations, the the recent Beatles documentary that showed them sort of working through the problems of building a song. Is is that kind of how you guys came to uh, to writing writing that book?
4: Well, I mean Patterson's been doing this for a long time with many collaborators, so he's got yeah. a very kind of well oiled system. Okay. You know, When I've collaborated with other people and I've, I've collaborated lots of times, I also yeah. do some ghostwriting. Each each one is different. It kind of depends on the needs of the partnership. Yeah. Um, Linda Hull and, and I write as as Linda Kier and mm-hmm. our fourth book is coming out next January. And we always say that it's important to find somebody who has different strengths and weaknesses because if you're both good at the same things and bad at the same things,
2: yeah. there's
4: no net gain. But if, if you are strong at something that your partner's weak at, uh, then you can make something happen. I, I recently heard a, a really interesting quote from Bill Hader of all people, who said that he always <laughs> wants to write with somebody because when you're working with somebody else and you say your your bad idea out loud, you realize it's bad a lot sooner.
1: And right. I think
4: that there's there's real wisdom there. It's important to work with somebody who doesn't have a big ego, so you can let the best idea win.
0: Working with Ken was was this dynamic back and forth. I I wrote a basic outline. sent it to him he he made suggestions and and revisions i worked off off his suggestions and revisions and back and forth and back and forth until we finally came up with with something that represented a shared vision kind of kind of how you guys worked it out
4: patterson's process is a little more i don't know he he generally doesn't like people to to reveal too much about that but it, it, Mm -hmm. it typically tends to start with him having the idea or the outline and then the collaborator is the drafter and then a lot of collaboration t- takes part during the revision process okay. when you look at you look at the rough draft and then you're you're both kicking around ideas to make it better All uh, right. with Lit- with Linda when we work together it's we choose different points of view and we write different characters but that's only after we have extensively outlined a book over dozens, if not hundreds of hours of conversation on the phone until we till we have a really airtight outline and then we write.
0: Almost almost like, like comedy writers would collaborate for a sketch comedy or for a sitcom mm-hmm. or, or something. Yeah. something along those. yeah. Assume assuming characters. Javier, so um publishing cocktails, the reason that we're here, you and Kier, were were you guys sitting at a bar one night and one of you says you know, would get this party started, publishers and editors. Um, is 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 that how publishing cocktails came about, or what was what was the what was the seed for publishing cocktails?
3: Well, I think we we'd both been doing our separate meetups for years previous. Then we, I think, Kier might have come to maybe Gillian Flynn, yeah, event that we hosted uh, at someone's apartment when she would only get twenty five people in a room before she blew up. We just, we knew what we were doing, I guess, separately. Yeah. Is that how it worked out? My, my, too many bars. <laughs> my,
4: my as, as I remember, the first event I went to was at Will's Northwood, but I think Gillian might've been there because I, I remember there were a few mystery authors there mm-hmm. and we were introduced by mutual friend, John Resch, who just mm-hmm. a, a wonderful guy. I had worked mm-hmm. with over at Billiards Digest when I was writing there. And For a long time, John had been saying, you gotta meet this guy, Javier, you guys are gonna hit it off. And it just took, it seemed like months if not years before John finally brought me to one of Javier's events. And Mm -hmm. I instantly loved what Javier was doing. I had a much smaller gathering. He was bringing booksellers and authors together. I had just kind of a a drinks night for editors. And then Javier and I hit it off and discussed like, how can we make this bigger and better and kind of have a bigger Mm -hmm. tent? Um, we like the idea of having people from all across Chicago's publishing ecosystem. And we, we like to keep it semi-professional. We like it to be people who, who earn a dollar or two in the world of, of books and letters, partly because we don't want the Gillian Flynn's of the world to feel like they're being besieged by aspiring authors. I mean,
2: yeah, sure. of course,
4: aspiring authors need need breaks, but professionals also need a place where they can let their hair down and talk with their peers. So we just talked about that and and kind of started inviting all sorts of people, journalists, librarians, agents, and publishers. And a lot of, over the years, a lot of people have told us how grateful they were to kind of realize how many others there were out there, that they weren't so alone, that Chicago's publishing team is bigger than they thought.
0: So is it, is it like a cocktail party environment or, uh, or do you have structure to these, to these meetups?
3: No, it's more just uh, you know, we find a bar um uh, on an off night during the week and mm-hmm. uh, find a room, usually get it for free. We talk to the management tell them what we're doing and they're usually pretty pretty helpful in that way. Yeah. We really it's there 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 are enough uh networking meetups for publishing around Chicago and we didn't want it to be that if we talk about work as little well as possible, that's that makes successful <laughs> a successful meetups so
0: and, and there are a number of, of literary meetups, but I don't, I don't think any of them have attained sort of the, the mythological uh, aspect that Publishing Cocktails has attained.
4: I think, well, you've been doing it for 12 years, so longevity helps. I mean, there yeah. is also the literary yeah.
0: salon hosted by Rebecca
4: McKay and, and some other mm-hmm. writers that's been, you know, Alexander Hemon used to be a major force in that. Yep. They've been going for a long time as well that That tends to be, and that's a wonderful group too. I think it tends to be a little more highbrow literary and and that's a great night. We just have a different vibe at ours. Um, mm-hmm. We love to bring together all kinds of authors from you know literary authors to genre authors to poets to as we said journalists, just to have a kind of a rich and interesting stew of mm-hmm. of, of We do have a couple of kind of regular events. We're behind in this summer's uh, book swap. Usually every summer we do a book swap where people bring an anonymously wrapped book and then give it to, you know, just kind of throw it in the pile. Then you you unwrap it and you get what you get. And and somebody tells you why they brought that book and why they recommend it. And then every December we do a cash mob to support a local independent bookstore. And we've tried to make the rounds of just about every independent bookstore who wants us. Mm -hmm. Um,
2: Mm-hmm. surprisingly
4: mm-hmm. one or two have said no over the years but really? usually the yeah. idea is that um we just bring as many people as we can and stop like crazy for an hour and then we go have our
0: regular drinks night seems, seems like you guys could take over a uh, an independent bookstore uh a, after hours with with one of these events we take over half <laughs> store once <laughs> or twice <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um B, byob <laughs> it's it's always yeah, it's so BYO, weird.
4: it's ca- and it's always a cash bar. Yeah. Uh, some bars they have to let us in for free because we we have no budget. It's just basically people paying their own way, paying their own mm-hmm. tab. You know, once or twice we might have gotten carried away and bought around, but you know, we're <laughs> we're we're not uh we're not that deep pocketed ourselves. So it is yeah. just gonna pay your own way and uh just try to have a good good night of conversation with people who love books.
0: How how long have you guys been doing this now?
4: Twelve years. Wow. Years.
0: So so 12 years is is a hell of a run. What what do you think you guys have have accomplished in that 12 years with publishing cocktails? Or did you set out oh, did you necessarily set out to to accomplish anything? This is just just a, a a successful the maybe the most successful meetup uh for for literati in Chicago.
3: I mean I think I just wanted to do it to hang out yeah here and then you know whoever came around came around uh i don't think we. i i didn't have any vision whatsoever uh it's a good excuse you know to to make these things happen um and we, you know we like to uh, you just wanted to hang support. out and all
0: these book people kept showing up
3: exactly yeah <laughs> uh you know we just we sort of on the back end we tried to support local businesses local bars uh when they're having off nights on a monday tuesday or wednesday
2: okay.
3: uh and you know if we get 30, 40 people showing up, mm-hmm. buying food and booze and tipping well.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, we feel like we've, we've sort of done our part.
4: You know, it's so what one of the things I love about it is it's just different every time. I think yeah. our our, yeah. our biggest event, we drew like 70 people. Our smallest was maybe a dozen. Pre pandemic, I think we were generally sort of 40 to 50. Um, it's been a little hard to rebuild the numbers post pandemic, and some people still don't seem hesitant to come out. Mm-hmm. Also, as Javier's become a store owner and and my career has gotten a little busier, it's just been mm-hmm. harder for us to to do it as regularly as we used to. But we've always had a sporadic schedule. I think for for me, I just I wanted to kind of create the thing that I wished I had been introduced to when I was starting out as a writer mm-hmm. in Chicago. It's a big city. It's not New York, but community. When I when I arrived here, it felt so hard to meet anybody in the book world, and so. Now that I mean, I still am always looking to to make new connections and make new friends, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. also it's just, it feels like a kind of a service to, you know, find that debut author and say, hey, you know, come meet some booksellers. You know, maybe you guys can work together. Mm -hmm. And we have had some interesting successes. We've had one uh, author found his agents and went on to successful collaboration at our Mm events. Many, many times, um, authors and booksellers have found a way that they can collaborate together on events. And just all there's all, all sorts of weird synchronicities that just happen when people find out that they like somebody who's doing something similar.
3: One of my photographer friends, um, Heidi Joe Brady, met uh, Gillian at one of these and ended up doing her jacket cover, her photo uh, for the jacket for Gone Girl. So, well, not too that, shabby.
0: Not too shabby <laughs> yeah. at all. I'd say I'd say those oh, those are some some pretty awesome accomplishments. Um, any future uh, any future publishing cocktails planned? And if there are, how would folks? find out, announcements, locations, dates, times? We do not have
4: the next one on the calendar, but there, uh, well, actually, no, we we do, we do, we do, we do. We're going to do a publishing cocktails before the Midwest Mystery Conference. So it's going to be Friday, November 10th.
2: Mm-hmm. Is
4: one, We might do one before then, but that's the one that's on the calendar at the moment. If people want to find out about it, they should just send an email to, to me. I, I, I do the mailing list. Mm -hmm. It's uh, K E I R at publishingcocktails.com and they should introduce themselves. Tell us a little bit about who they are and how they fit into the Chicago literary ecosystem. And uh, that's kind of it. We just do a mailing list. We try to keep it kind
3: of, it's kind of quasi invite only.
0: Okay. That was, that was going to be my, my next question, but, but you covered it, man.
3: And it should be noted that uh, this has been adapted in two other cities. In Seattle and Milwaukee, I saw that and we get inquiries often on how to start it. And and I when I when I go to uh, bookseller conferences, I uh-huh. try to convince any bookseller in their city to do something like this just to build a community. It's a good way to do it.
0: Are uh, are Harv- uh, Javier and Kier doing uh, publishing cocktails national tour? <laughs> <laughs> We've talked um, about it. do, do, do they at <laughs> least invite you? <laughs> oh yeah, yes, yes. All right, we well, do invite
3: it to the Milwaukee Braves
0: so. But but do they expect you to buy your own drinks? <laughs> I don't know. It's a good question. I, I'd say I'd say that's a point for negotiation, and and I, I'd be happy to negotiate that for you for ten percent. But we, we can we can talk about that later. Uh thank you, gentlemen. This was this was wonderful. Kira Graff is a writer, editor, and author, and the co-author of Minerva Keene's Detective Club with James Patterson. The website is KiraGraff.com. Javier Ramirez is a proprietor, Exile and Bookville, exileandbookville.com in the historic fine arts building, 410 South Michigan Avenue, suite two ten uh in Chicago's loop. Uh you can call Ex- uh, Exile uh and Bookville at 312 753 three one five four uh but like mr Graf, javier's commercial projects uh both have outstanding websites and i will post links to uh to those including social media links in the notes below either of you want to give out uh each other's phone number or banking pin number (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> <laughs> Nobody uh, no, wants my, baby. I think uh, my no,
0: social security uh, no, numbers no one ever. On the dark web. No one ever says que- says yes <laughs> to that question, so we'll we'll let it go. But but thank you guys. This was this was wonderful. I'd like to thank all of our guests and all of you who listened. Chicago Regis Association is a five hundred one c three charitable organization. Don't forget to like us on Facebook. You've been listening to Chicago Writes, the podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. Our theme song is Midnight Ride, courtesy of Dino Lovchich. You can find Dino's music, just like this program, on Spotify. And we're always looking for ways to better this program and make it more useful for you, the writer. Feel free to let me know any suggestions for guests or topics that you would like to see on this program. Contact me at William Turk that's William T-U-R-C-K all one word lowercase at yahoo.com and please begin your subject line with CWA suggestion. Please subscribe to this podcast and feel free to share it with the writer in your life. Until next time, keep writing. I'm your host, WC Turk.